Welcome to Voices from the Past, a podcast from Plymouth Plantation. Come behind the scenes and discover how museum historians, curators, artisans, and interpreters recreate the 17th century worlds of Plymouth and Patuxet in 21st century landscapes. Today I'm thrilled to welcome Bob Charlebois to the podcast. Bob is one of our talented native artisans and a senior interpreter down on the Wampanoag home site and is here today to talk to us about wampum. Welcome to our podcast. Please be here. Happy to be here. How long have you been working with, well, before we talk about wampum, tell our listeners what wampum is. Uh, wampum was, uh, it has quite a history. It's, uh, it's made from, the, the white beads are made from uh, whelk shells from the the uh, centrifuge of the whelk shell and the purple beads are made from the purple of the quahog shell, which is a clam that can only be found from about, uh, say, the, the shores of Massachusetts down to uh, Connecticut, say, eastern Long Island in that area. And it would have made the tribes in that area very popular, but we'll get to that in a second. But originally it was used by those local people there as jewelry. It was very pretty. Uh, and they could make some very pretty jewelry. Uh, later on it became an accounting device and there's an association with it uh, with uh, money. Uh, but uh, if I, say, if I bought, uh, I had, say, five bushels of corn and you had three nice deer skins or something like that and we wanted to trade them, we'd each get seven beads of wampum in a particular color order and it would be like a receipt mm. uh, and if you had problem a problem with what I had given you or vice versa we could go to an elder and say here see here's my receipt you see uh, now the Dutch people who lived in what's now New Amsterdam saw that and they said hey let's make money out of it you know so they printed up a whole bunch of it mostly in, in um, glass, from purple glass, uh, and it became a, a form of a currency, but it didn't last too long. It wasn't, it was kind of a crashing failure, you know. Uh, it, the real important uh, application of wampum was in the, with the tribes of the north. They, uh, the Iroquois, the, the various Algonquian tribes uh, in uh, Canada and so forth, uh, they were always at war with each other. And when they made peace, it was a big item. You know, they, my father used to say there were, there's no friends like old enemies who become friends. So they'd want a permanent salient record of that peace, and they would, uh, they'd make a wampum belt, and they would come down here and trade with the nations on the east coast here and the south, um, south uh, eastern coast of New England, for the beats, and that was a big thing. You know, that was. Uh, they, they would make, uh, it was like favored nation trading status or something like that, and they became strong partners of the natives in the north. You know? So there you go. And so we, we talked about how the Dutch had their own European spin on wampum that right. wasn't terribly successful. No. So has it just been a, a cultural misunderstanding that wampum has, in the intervening 400 years, has become synonymous with money? I, yeah, I think, I, I don't know how it, I, I haven't any ideas to the, the naissance of it, but I know that uh, the Dutch tried to make it into a currency. They were, I, I'm, I think other people were probably searching for a standard currency in North America, 
and uh, it didn't work uh, the way they wanted it to. You know, they uh, we had to wait until we got a good good old United States and got real you know uh, currency and so forth. But um, uh, you know, in a barter economy, you don't really need money. You know, so. And that's essentially Wampanoag and other Eastern Woodland peoples used essentially a barter economy. Barter economy. They, uh, yeah, they, you know, like, I'll trade you my fish for your, uh, you know, your, your furs or something like that. And uh, everything, the world was good, you know, and it, it worked very well that way. And I think a, a lot of primitive people here, Europe and uh, Africa, all over the world, they went through phases where, uh, in development, where they had the barter economy. And I know that in the in the European economy, the English economy, as it evolved here in New England and in Virginia and other colonies, barter and trade items like corn or in Virginia tobacco became yeah. the foundation of a monetary uh, economy here in the New World. Is there any comparison in, in Native culture? Was there sort of a standard for which... A, all barter and trade negotiations were met, or was it up to the individuals involved to determine what equal value was? It was up to the individuals, and to, uh, it would be reinforced by elders, you know, who uh, a, a lot of what uh, Native people did was uh, very similar to, uh, oddly enough, to, uh, you know, like the idea of English common law, which was by precedent. Mm -hmm. So there would be a precedent as to what, was, what a thing was worth, you know. Um, you know, a beaver, a, a beaver skin might be worth so many ermine skins or something like that. You know, and that was. And why did they know that? Is because back in, you know, uh, eighty winters ago, somebody determined that. So that was. That's like English common law. You know, you, something happened. Oh, oh, well, what did they do in this case? So well, you know, they they punished him with fifty lashes, and that was three centuries ago. Okay, we'll do the same thing now. Sure. Know. Sort of, sort of like that, Joe. And was there a, a man or a woman in the community whose job it was to sort of keep the financial records, so to speak, of a community? Uh, not necessarily, no. no. Uh, the, the head of the household was a woman. Mm -hmm. uh, she, was, she was the boss, and she would, uh, she would keep the records for the, the, the family, but I don't think there was an overall... There, I don't think they had a, uh, an accountant or anything like that. You know? I think that's a modern... But it would be part of the oral tradition of a community to remember the precedent set sure. from 80 winters ago. Yeah, they would have, uh, people back then, they would have a, what they called the winter count, and they did it here. The, the problem that, you know, in the eastern part of the United States is that we live in a, uh, an area where the soil is very acid. It's acidic, you know, in the water and so forth. So a lot of these things just burn up or uh, dissolve when they're, if they're exposed to the ground. Uh, but uh, they had uh, every year they had a they take a, a deer skin a buck skin and in pictographic form you know talk about that year it might be the year of the great disease the year of the the drought the year of the abundant fish harvest you know uh, and um, the year of this such and such great chief who died or something like that you know and it would mark that year and then there would be other things that had happened in that year that would be below it. It was called the winter count, and all of the tribes had it. Very few of them survived, but in some museums you can find uh, well-kept versions uh, and samples of them. Uh, and so that's how you could date certain things, and that's how you got the idea of precedent. 
And then going back to wampum a little bit, right. you mentioned that as well as being a way to acknowledge economic transactions right. as a receipt, as you said, that it was also used for personal adornment. Oh, um, sure. How, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, yeah, well, you know, this is something that I, I, I wasn't, uh, I'm not by any means an expert about wampum, but uh, I've learned from uh, some of my Wampanoag brothers and sisters. I'm, I'm, I'm an Abenaki, I'm from the north, but uh, I asked them about this. I've, we've talked, we talk about a lot of things, uh, and they, they tell me what they know, and vice versa. Uh, and one person in particular uh, told me, an elder, told me that the purple in uh, the Kohawk shell, the Pukwahug, uh, was seen as the blood of Mother Earth, and it was protective. So if you, if you see a lot of these Wampanoag people, sometimes if even just in plain clothes, sometimes they're wearing jewelry and so forth made of wampum, mm -hmm. and that's protection. That's in the adornment and protection at the same time. Native people still do a lot of that stuff. If you go to a powwow, you'll see uh, guys like northern traditional dancers, and they'll be wearing like the porcupine hair headdress. They might be wearing a, an otter breastplate or something like that. All of those animals, they get protection from. They get the protection from their spirits. So that's what the, the Wampanoags would see in that. It's not only beautiful, but it's, uh, it's a way to protect yourself, you know. And I know part of your work here at Plymouth Plantation, you demonstrate in the craft center. Right. You make porcupine headdresses, I not only do. for our staff members, but right. for other native communities I, across the country. Yep, absolutely, yeah. And, and would wampum um, be gifted to, for ceremonial purposes the same way a porcupine headdress sure. would be gifted? Sure. All things are gifted. There's a ceremony that goes with anything that's gifting, you know, uh, and it's very solemn. It could be very brief or it could be very elaborate, but uh, when we give things, it's all part of a ceremony, and it's from the heart, you know, uh, and uh, it would differ from tribe to tribe and or nation to nation, I should say, and from person to person and situation to situation, but they're, they're, uh, whenever you gave something as an exchange, you know, as a, uh, or just as a gift, an out-and-out gift, uh, it was subject to a, a ceremony, you know, and all ceremony, ceremony itself was a gift from the Creator. That's what my, my grandpa told me at one time. So. Now, you've been working with wampum over the last several weeks, correct? Crafting a, crafting a belt for the Bradford wedding. Yeah, I've been uh, running myself into the ground doing it. Um, yeah, I, I crafted a belt and it's, um, it's about six and a half feet, I think, or it was 74 inches. It's six foot two by uh, six inches wide. Uh, it's a 12, it's a 12 bead width. And uh, it's going to be given, uh, be presented at Governor Bradford's wedding uh, the the reenactment of Governor Bradford's wedding on um, tomorrow, tomorrow, August fifteenth. And uh, uh, but it's uh, basically, if you saw it, it would have two white rows of whelk shell on it, uh, like two row wampum, which is basically saying, you know, that on this date, that two equal people got together as friends, and then below that, uh, we'd have uh, we decided to put. Man, woman, man, woman, man, woman, man, woman, and so forth. Uh, and they, it's got, you have to have a stretch of the imagination to look at it to know that, but um, they're all holding hands, and that would, that would represent all of the native Wampanoag people uh, from the, the Pocanoket 
um, the Poconocket Nation, or the, I should say the Poconocket Village, and uh, all the other villages in the area who would have been invited to uh, Governor Bradford's wedding. So it's and an acknowledgement of the diplomatic relationship these two communities are sure. entering into. Right, and, it's, and it's, it's basically saying, you know, on this date, uh, we present this as a wedding gift. This is how we want you to remember it. It's a little bit like, in its own way, like a recounting, a very basic recounting, not nearly as elaborate. You can think of the Bayeux Tapestry, which mm -hmm. tells the story about how the Norman French uh, invaded England in 1066 and, and beat the forces of uh, Harold of uh, Wessex or whatever, mm -hmm. and uh, became the, the overlords of southern England. Uh, it's, it's not nearly as elaborate, but it's a way of saying, this is what happened on that day. And I think there are items like that that uh, every society makes, and this is just ha happens to be the form that ours took, you know? And wampum belts like this, when you and other Wampanoag artists are, are creating the design, do right. you look at original pieces? Does it come out of your own imagination? Where Both. does the design come from? Both. Um, Darius uh, Coombs is a gentleman who's going to be playing uh, Massasoit, the sage of Massasoit. Uh, he told me after I was done with the big wampum belt, he said, make some more jewelry. He said, I can use a, a headband for this thing. So I thought about it, you know, and I made a, uh, I just started doing it, and then it just hit me. Wow, I know what I have to do. So I made a bunch of pine trees, which are a symbol used to be a symbol for where I come from of a, of a sachem, you know, mm -hmm. and we're still on. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it, it hit me, and it uh, it came out very nice. And there are some guys who can do that. I, I did it this time. I, I, um, sometimes I, it's hit or miss. Sometimes you make some pretty weird-looking stuff. But, um, you know, if you can go into it with a general idea or you can come out and uh, use uh, your wiles as an artist to do it, uh, you have to keep in mind that there's only so much you can do with wampum beads, you know. Smaller beads, you can kind of make a little bit more of an artistic dent but uh, and show your uh, your artistic side. But with the wampum beads, it's a little bit difficult. Yeah. So the wampum beads that we work with here at Plymouth Plantation, right. how, do we, how do we acquire them? Are they made for us? Do we purchase them? I think we purchased these ones, um, but we have people uh, here and in the Wampanoag community down in Cape Cod, uh, several of them who actually make the wampum. Mm -hmm. Some of them make it all by hand, some of them make it with machinery, um, and uh, I'm told that for every purple bead you see when they make them, about eight or so of them, or maybe sometimes even nine, will break because it's just limestone, you know. So that adds to the value of, oh, sure. of the object, whether it's jewelry or a yeah. six-foot-two belt. Six-foot-two belt. You know, and I, uh, I know that we sell some of the wampum jewelry here uh, that some of those guys make. We sell them in the uh, gift shop here. So, yeah. Just a quick plug, you know, so. So I want to turn our attention away from wampum just for a minute. I know one of your area of expertise at the museum is also uh, spiritual life of Native people. And yeah. so I wanted to talk about weddings a little bit yeah. in Native culture. Mm -hmm. um, 
the wedding that we are doing tomorrow mm -hmm. is an English wedding. Right. And it's a separatist wedding, so it's going to look a little different. We've talked on the podcast before that this is going to be a civil ceremony where God is still present, but it's not right. going to be officiated by a minister. Right. What role did spirituality play in Wampanoag weddings? It, it was from A to Z. It was spiritual. Um, it was, you know, I mean, the person you were, you were, uh, you were going to marry was a soulmate. And uh, we say, where I come from, we say they're, they're Wichi Wakan, they, they walk, there are two that walk on one road, you know, and it was very important because they're going to walk on one road, not only here, but in the next life, you know, so it was very important in the, the symbology, the symbolism rather of uh, everything that happened was uh, all geared to that in the, in the ceremony, you know, we have we'd start off with two fires and we join them as one you know mm -hmm. uh, they start off separately and then after they're joined as a couple uh, after uh, the, the, the man smokes the pipe and uh, so forth uh, uh, and he becomes married uh, they are draped together with a, a red blanket and that red blanket represents the east in the medicine wheel, and that the east uh, symbolically is, uh, it talks about birth and about blood and uh, about the beginning of life and life together, you know, it's, it's all very, it's all very symbolic, you know, it's very beautiful, actually, you know, so. And a little bit of hypothesizing here, but for Wampanoag men and other um, men coming to this ceremony from native, from native communities, what do you think they would have made of the English, the English civil ceremony, which is pretty bare bones? It's mm -hmm. essentially, um, do you acknowledge each other? Are you coming here of your own will? They're mm -hmm. agreeing to um, to the vows. There will be vows. But it doesn't have a great spiritual overtone, with the exception of prayer, um, to bookend it. Do you think that would have been a strange thing to witness for Wampanoag people? No, probably not too strange. It was, uh, um, you know, they were the the um, English were reserved people. They were very reserved. You know, all the Europeans were very different from one another, but the English were reserved, and uh, uh, they. Uh, probably thought it was a very solemn and quiet occasion and um, my guess is that they would have uh, probably would have expected something like that you know um, and uh, it was in, in that way it was very important you know so well, thank you very much, Bob, for taking the time to speak with us. Sure. For more information about our Bradford wedding, you can always visit us online at Plymouth.org. And make sure to tune in again for more episodes of Voices from the Past. Thanks for listening.